0: Well, I'm going to ask you guys a very simple question. I already know the answer, so you really don't need to answer out loud. I'm just going to assume your question. Uh, Have you ever quit on a project? I mean, have you ever stared down a house project? No? Okay, that's fine. All right. All right, so I was wrong. All right, we have one person who's never quit on a project ever before. Uh, No, okay. Uh, I'm just going to doubt you because you're my brother, and I know exactly what you've done in your life. Uh, So... We've all done this, right? We have all quit on projects. I've done it, uh, namely with a little project called high school. Uh, I I quit on that puppy halfway through. Why why did I do that? Why do we quit on projects, right? Because most likely inside of our hearts, we look at the cost. We say this is what needs to be done in order for the project to be finished and finished well. We look at the cost and we say it's not worth it it's not worth it. We look at the time, we look at the energy, we look at the resources needed in order to get whatever it is before us done, and we say, "Ah, oh, you know what? After a good night's sleep, like a couple months in a row, then I'll get to it, right? Then I'll get to it. I will get to this project when I think it's worth it. And I was tempted here to say this is an American thing, right? We love the cost-benefit analysis, right? Is the benefit worth the cost, right? But really, this is not just an American, this is a human thing. And I'm going to tell you, it's a human thing because we are all built for worship. We're all built for worship. We're all built to give up things in order to love something else, right? We're all called to do this. And that means this question of, is it worth it? It's not just this cost-benefit analysis. not just an American question. Really, because it's a human question, this question is a worship question. It's a worship question. It really is a question in our hearts, right? deepest most parts, whether it's high school or a house project or a relationship or a work, whatever it might be, we're saying there, is it, right, am I going to give my all to it? This is a worship question. So that means that ultimately this is a spiritual question because we're not just looking at the house projects, we're not just looking at the relationships, we're not just looking at schoolwork, we're not just looking at lawn work, whatever it might be, and saying, is this worth it, right, and thinking, right, that's just the only part of that question. Really, we're looking at each one of those things and more and saying, am I tempted to give up on my worship of God? In everyday life, no matter where we are, at home, at work, wherever it might be, we are making these worship decisions. And wouldn't you know it, every single day we're tempted to give up on the worship of Jesus. The only way we worship Jesus is by understanding his worthiness. By understanding his worthiness, his glory. How great he is motivates us to worship him with all that we are, and all that we have. If you're taking notes today, I don't know if it's filled in for you, but all the way at the bottom you'll see big idea, bold letters hopefully. I'll give you the big idea now. We're just going to unpack it as we go through the passage, but it's this. That true worship is costly, but God is worthy. True, true, true worship, I can't even read my own digital handwriting here. True worship is costly, but God is worthy. All right. And we're going to see... We're going to see people wrestle with this. Jesus himself wrestle with this throughout this passage, all right? And we're going to see how worthy God is of our worship. So look at verse 1 here with me. It says this, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is one of those gigantic hinge points in the book of Matthew, right? We've been looking at, uh, you guys have been looking at, I've just been doing it at a distance, but you guys have been looking at many chapters here full of Jesus' public ministry. Ministry to religious leaders, ministry to Israelites, ministry, or ministry to people outside of Israel, right? And he's been teaching, he's been describing what the kingdom of God looks like and why they need to pay attention, and why they need to look at Jesus as not just a great teacher, not just as a prophet, but as the Messiah. Jesus' teachings are filled with him as king, and him as bringing the kingdom of God near to the people. But here, we see this big turn. He turns from that public ministry to the private ministry. He turns from uh, the rest of his ministry to the Passion Week. This is going to set up the rest of the week as Jesus heads towards the cross. And so Jesus turns and he focuses, laser focuses in on his disciples and he begins teaching and showing them specifically what it looks like to have him as their king and to live in the kingdom of God. So he makes this first statement here in verse 2. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is the good news that Jesus is trying to help his disciples know. If you guys remember all the way back to Matthew chapter 1, 21, when the angel is bringing the truth to Mary about what exactly Jesus will do on earth, he says to Mary, right, that his duty on earth is to save people from their sin. That that will be the ministry of Jesus. And here we are, 20, quick math, never do math in public, 24 chapters later, all right, we see that God's plan to save sinners from their sin is finally coming to be fulfilled. But the shocking part here is, is that it will come at a great cost. Jesus just won't get up and say one more sermon. He won't get up and break one more piece of bread. He won't get up and heal one more person. But the ministry of God to broken sinners will come at the cost of Jesus's life. We get a glimpse as to why this needs to happen. We can't pass over this detail. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It's no uh, incident, it's no mistake that all this is happening right here, the Passion Week at the Passover And if you guys remember when the Passover was installed in Israelite tradition, this was when God was rescuing his people out from Egyptian slavery. If you guys remember, they had to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. You guys will also recall that if they did this, the angel of death would pass over their house as that final plague, and the eldest son of that house would be spared, but If they didn't, if they didn't heed God's warning, then there would be a great cost to that family for not trusting the Lord and obeying his way. Jesus here isn't just simply pointing back to the Passover, but he's saying that I am that lamb. I am the one that will save you from your sin. I'm the one that will bring you what you need, rescue from sin into my kingdom. The Passover here represents simply that Jesus' blood pays for our sin, earns our righteousness. I know earlier I told you I didn't do too hot in high school, so big words are not my everyday thing. But I will give you two gigantic words here. Not just gigantic in length, but also just gigantic as we consider what Jesus has done for us on the cross. You guys might be familiar with this. I'm not sure if Mike still does big Bible words or not, but these are two of Mike's favorite big Bible words. The first one is this. Propitiation. Don't ask me to spell that because I'm not even sure I got it right here. But propitiation. Quick Google search will figure it out for you. This is the first satisfaction that Jesus earned for us, and that is to satisfy God's wrath. God is a holy God, and that means that he needs to punish sin directly. He would not be a holy God. He would not be a good God. He would not even be a gracious or loving God if he did not deal with the real threat against his holiness that we cause, sin. So propitiation here is God's wrath satisfied, or against us, is satisfied in Jesus's death. To think about that for a moment, to slow down, to consider the fact that God's wrath is against you because of your choice, not just in action, but also in desire, in thought, in word, but then to consider that Jesus's death on the cross satisfied God's wrath for you. The second gigantic word is justification. And this is not just God satisfying his wrath, but this is our end. This is our side of the coin because we need to be satisfied as well. If sin earns God's wrath against us, sin also separates us from God. And the only time that we can be truly satisfied here now and for all eternity is to be united with God. And so justification means that Jesus' sacrificial death makes us righteous. The greatest need that we have is to be satisfied in God, and Jesus' death does that. Brings us out of that domain of darkness into the kingdom of light adopted by God. Now, we just need to think here for a moment. Put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. We get a glimpse of this in the Garden of Gethsemane later on in the gospel. Jesus is wrestling here with worship of God. To think about this as just a simple black and white picture, it doesn't do it justice. But to really put ourselves here in the shoes of Jesus, to think that Jesus here knows in verse 2 that his death is imminent, right? He says in two days his death is coming. And just to think about the equation, that eternal spiritual equation that Jesus has coursing through his mind here. Am I really going to give my life up for a bunch of dirty, rotten scoundrels? Am I really going to do that? The reason why Jesus will do this, and he says this in the Garden of Gethsemane, is because he worships God. So we see even here, Jesus himself, the true worship of God, is because he understands how great God is and how great his plan is. That even at great cost, he would turn towards us and say, I will die, right? I will give myself up so that you may be saved from your sin. Jesus turns to us even when we don't deserve it. He turns to us even though we don't look all that great. He turns to us even though we mess up daily. And the reason he does that is because God is so glorious. Today, if you are sitting here and you are thinking to yourself, why would I ever believe in Jesus? Uh, The world offers me this gigantic palette, this buffet of all the good things I could ever possibly desire, anything that my heart wants, I can easily type it into Amazon and it will come up. And if, yeah, it'll be here in a day, right? Why would I ever need Jesus? I want you to think about these two things. I want you to think about God's wrath and your righteousness, your need for righteousness. And think about how Jesus satisfies both of those because God is so glorious. Maybe today you just need to hear it. Jesus loves you so much. He was willing to die on the cross to satisfy God's wrath and your need for righteousness. His justice and his graciousness come together on the cross for you. But we're humans, and as good of news as that is, we still have these broken, sinful hearts. Look at the chief priests. We're going to see a series of responses here to God's plan of salvation. The first one here is the chief priests. We get the image here that uh, in verse 3 that while Jesus is laser focused on teaching his disciples, the uh, Pharisees, religious teachers, elders are laser focused on their own plan. Look at this. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. And kill him. So, while Jesus is training his disciples, while he is unleashing the glory of God through the plan of the gospel, we get this other plan. The camera kind of shifts to this other room, and we get this scene where the religious leaders are hunkered down, plotting out Jesus' death. In verse 5, we read that they actually want to prolong it, they just don't want to do it right now. In verse 5, but they said, Not during the feast, let there be an uproar amongst the people. Israel did have this history of uproarious riots when something didn't go their way. That's totally not like us right now in America. That's not us, right? It's just, it's a, it's a, in the past problem. But to look at this and to say, they have their own plan. And Jesus has not hidden his plan. it's not hidden God's plan from them. At this moment, the leaders know God's plan. And they are saying, we have a different plan. I'm going to plan something Else out. And honestly, this is each and every one of us. One of the first responses we can have to the greatness of God shared with us through the truth of the gospel is that's awesome, and I'm glad that's good for some people, but for me, I have a different plan. I'm going to try to earn my salvation. I'm going to try to dull that feeling that I know I have inside my heart for God's righteousness. I'm going to try to dull that with something else. But we need to understand that God's plan always overrides our plan. I hope you guys notice the difference here. The religious leaders are looking to do this after the feast, while Jesus is saying in two days. So, probably what's going on here is that Jesus is making this prophecy, this prediction, this revelation on a Tuesday or Wednesday, because on Friday he will be crucified. And the religious leaders are saying, ah, let's wait till like Monday or Tuesday of next week, right? But which one pans out? God's plan. God's plan pans out, and that is good news for us. People who are struggling with our plan versus God's plan is to know that God's plan is true. God's plan is right. Because God is king, his plan cannot be thwarted by us, and that is very good news. That means that the offer of the gospel always stands. Whether you believe or you don't believe, the offer of the gospel stands for you. But it also means that as life goes on, the battleground of worship really is based on how we understand God's plan for salvation. If we understand it poorly, if we don't get what God's desire and his role is, or we overestimate ourselves and what our role is, then we are bound to worship anything other than God. But if we do get the gospel message right, then really our lives are forfeit to God and we are willing to worship him no matter the cost. This becomes apparent as we look at the woman and Judas coming up. Look at me with verse 6. It says this, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, now we don't know much about Simon the leper here, but since he's in a house in the community, we have this rough guess that Jesus at one point in his ministry healed him, and now he is back into society, right? Back in that day, if you're a leper, you were quarantined, off in the distance, away in a foreign camp with all the other lepers. So, seeing that this guy is back in a the house, then that means probably Jesus healed him and he was brought back in. And he probably keeps this tag, the leper, to remind himself of Jesus's change in his life, right? Jesus's healing on his life. Verse seven: A woman came up to him with an alabaster alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment. Maybe your Bible says perfume or oil. It's up for grabs. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. So this woman is Martha. We know this from John chapter 12. And what she's doing here is she's taking this very expensive flask, vase, bottle, whatever synonym you want to use, and is filled with expensive oil, right? Now, this is probably a family heirloom. Probably what's going on here is this is worth about a year's wages, okay? So like $42 billion in our day and age. Uh, And what she's going to do is she's going to break it, right? Other other gospels say that she's going to break this open. She's going to make sure that there's no putting back together this wealth and pour it on Jesus' head. Why is this happening? Think about the religious leaders understanding Jesus' mission and their response. Our plan is to get him out of here. Mary's plan is the exact opposite. It's, I'm going to give up whatever I have in order to anoint Jesus. This is a picture of anointment here. And back in that day, again, right, if, if an honored guest came to the house, was reclining at the table, probably picking at food off the table, eating it, and is so solely enjoying the fellowship, then somebody would honor that honored guest by doing this practice. So Mary, again, Seeing Jesus' teachings, seeing what he's done, understands that Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah and responds rightly with costly worship. She's willing to not just pour out that expensive perfume, but even break the bottle, that alabaster bottle, in order to show her love for Jesus. It's amazing here. In an absolute moment, we get the other side of the spectrum. Look at verse 8. And when the disciples saw this, hint here, this is Judas, we learned this also from John 12, so we can really just read this, when Judas saw this, they were indignant, there's another big word for you, that means furious, right, furious, why are they furious? Saying, why this waste? This is the same feeling I get when my kids throw their food out, I'm like, what are you doing? I paid good money for that, right? Why are you wasting it? And even though this this seems so virtuous, why wouldn't you sell that thing for a year's worth of wages and give it to the poor? We read that in verse 9. This could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. We know again from John chapter 12 that what really is going on here is that Judas secretly wants that money for himself. We read that he is the one that took care of the group's purse in a sense and that he was picking out the money that he desired and keeping it for himself. So just get the get the dichotomy here. Here is Mary understanding Jesus' Messiahship, the king about to be crucified for her and for all the other people, and she responds rightly with this costly worship. And then Judas over on the other side, thinking, This guy isn't giving me enough money that I want. Right? He should have told her to sold it, to put it in my purse so that I could keep it. Thankfully, though, Jesus cuts to the chase. Verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, probably means here, not just aware of Judas and maybe the other disciples that came along with him in this argument, but probably more along the lines of knew the the heart, the content of their hearts, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? Why are you mocking her? Why are you casting her down? Why are you trying to squash her under the foot of your own desires? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Maybe your Bibles there say Noble. She's done a beautiful thing for me. Jesus doesn't see Mary's expenditure of the ointment as a waste. Rather, he sees this as a perfectly good thing. Her worship is good unto the Lord. And this just, let's just pause right here and just think for a sec. If we ever need to know what we should do in a situation, think to this part where the Lord of the universe says to a dirty sinner that trusts him, It is right for you to worship me. That should be our guiding principle. What should I do in this situation? I have no idea. I really don't know. Google's not helping me. I know what it is. I'm going to worship Jesus. But think about this. Jesus says these two things in defense of Mary. Verse 11, For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Sounds kind of rude on the front, right? But what Jesus is saying here is that there is actually no greater ministry for anybody to be involved in than the worship of me. We're all going to have ministry. We're all going to have needs. There's going to be internal needs. There's going to be family needs. There's going to be work needs. There's going to be church needs. There's going to be world needs. Those things are always going to exist. But for every chance, Every moment that you have to worship me, that is the best thing you can do. There's no greater ministry than the costly worship of Jesus. So on that hand, Jesus defends her. On the second hand, we see in verse 12, he says something else. In pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Let's think about this for a moment. In Mary's preparation, in a sense, of Jesus' For death, And Mary probably didn't know this. Jesus is just taking what she has done and helping the disciples, again, to understand that his crucifixion is coming up, right? But in that day, criminals were not prepared for burial. The, the general idea was that if that person was tried and found out to be a criminal and then was punished by death for that, that they didn't deserve the care to be buried properly. But for a loved one or an honored one, that person was prepared for burial by putting perfumes and spices on the body before being laid in the tomb. So Jesus is probably saying here that even though in a moment, in two days, he's going to die as a criminal and the whole world around is going to say, Jesus is a criminal. He deserves to die on that cross. He is convicted of the sin that we have said he is convicted. Mary here rightly sees through all of that and says, no, he's the Messiah. He's the King. And because of that, I will treat him as such. And Jesus takes it and says, even though everybody else is going to say, I deserve the criminal's death, Mary here rightly worships me as the Messiah. And again, though we may here desire differently, though we may think that Jesus doesn't deserve our worship in this moment, this moment, that moment, Mary here shows us the right way to worship, this costly worship but it's based on Jesus's worth. And we get this amazing, amazing part. I was trying to rack my brain thinking of another part in the Bible that sounds like this. I, I really couldn't think of anything. But in thir- verse 13, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel, wherever the good news of my crucifixion happens, right, wherever it's proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That this worship was so amazing that Jesus would put it, would, would make sure that it was part of his Bible so that generations later, states, countries, continents over, we would be able to know what right worship looks like. Praise God. So Mary here really is the right picture of right worship to the truth of who Jesus is. And Jesus has been talking about this the whole time. And you think back to Matthew chapter 13, 44 and 45, he's talking about these parables. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, right? So no one else could steal it from him. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and what? Buys the field. That devotion to the Lord right, to know how great Jesus is, to know how great the kingdom is, to understand the gospel and how we are entered in, we're adopted into that by God's own sacrifice, wells up in us. Not just an understanding of how great God is, but a desire to worship him. And Mary is the right picture of that. She really is the fulfillment of this parable. But we get the other side of the coin. Look at Judas here. If Mary is the good representation of this Look at Judas, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Him being Jesus. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. If Mary is the right picture of a response to who Jesus is and the gospel of Jesus Christ, Judas is the exact opposite. Mary pours out all the wealth she has in order to worship Jesus. And Judas says, what will you give me anything? And I will give give Jesus over to you. It's not that big of a deal. 30 pieces of silver, sure. 15, I don't know. Whatever it might be, Judas is willing to take any amount of wealth in order to betray Jesus. These are the polarizing responses to the gospel. Judas really has fulfilled the warning that Jesus has been talking about the whole time, all of his teaching. Think about Matthew chapter 6, 24 through 26. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Judas is the fulfillment of the person who knows who Jesus is and yet plans a different route, turns away. And you can really insert anything there, right? No one can serve God and sex. No one can serve God and success. No one can serve God and drink or food or whatever you want to plug in there, right? But we are tempted, as Judas is tempted, to give ourselves over to a false God. So really, we have these polarizing responses to the gospel, and it begs us this big question today, right? Are we more like Mary or are we more like Judas? Are we more like Mary or more like the religious leaders who thought that they had everything buttoned up thought that they had the good plan, that they knew the right course of action. But really what they knew was that they wanted to fulfill their own desires. And we got to think about this, not just, not just when we thinking about Mary, not just saying, what do I need to give up? What do I need to do? But also, where does my heart need to be at? Because Mary just didn't worship God by dumping out a year's worth of wages of perfume on his head. But she considered Jesus to be more important than her financial security, her personal wealth. Right? Anything that she could be given over to anybody else around her, she considered Jesus to be more important than her very own security. Mary's costly worship here is at great cost. Giving up some of those things that she would probably maybe even said a few years ago, I need. Now she says, because God is so great to me, I need to give those things up for him. Mary's costly worship here isn't to earn Jesus' favor. We need to be clear about this but it's in response to his favor. It's in response to his grace towards Mary. See, at the end of the day, because we're all worshipers and worship works the exact same way, we have to say that worship has to. It must cost something. If you hear about somebody that says, I really love X, Y, Z, and then they never do anything about it, inside, what are you saying? You're saying, liar. You're a big liar. Your pants are on fire. You're a big, gigantic liar, right? Right? that's what's going on. We know hypocrisy when we see it. That's why worship has to cost something. We are all giving ourselves over to something in worship. So I need to ask you guys a question, is it costing you something to worship Jesus? Think about all the areas of your life, home life, work life, friends life, personal life. Is it costing you something to worship Jesus? Uh, Do the people around you say, yes, this person worships Jesus, I know, because they give up fill in the blank. Is it costing you something to worship Jesus in every area? I think that's the other thing that we would say. Maybe we're closer to Judas in this way. As long as I'm near Jesus, as long as I'm doing the Jesus thing, I can hold on to greed. I can hold on to the power. I can hold on to whatever it might be. Is it costing you something to worship Jesus in every area of your life? Would you say you are giving the cost of worship to him because you know how great Jesus is? Let's look at Judas here. Instead of recognizing Jesus as Messiah, and we can lump the religious leaders in with him here, he saw Jesus not as a Messiah, but as a threat. As a threat, right? Along with the religious leaders. The reason why they wanted to kill him was to get him out of the way so they can continue pursuing what they truly wanted. Money and power. And it should be no surprise to us that the good, righteous, and just king Jesus threatens his enemies. The very presence, the very knowledge of who God is should threaten our sinfulness. Judas and the religious leaders felt that Jesus was getting in their way of power and wealth. So their plan was, let's get him out of here. So we ask the question here, in what areas do you see Jesus as a threat? Where the areas that you think it's not worth it, it just isn't worth it inside my heart. I know right now I'm being convicted of my love for fill in the blank, and yet every fiber of being says I'm not going to give it up. It's not worth it. Again, we look at the gospel and we say it is worth it because of what Jesus has done for us. I want you guys to think about that. Whether it's right now, later today, talk to the elders about this, talk to Pastor Mike about this, admit, confess to those faithful around you, I am having trouble not seeing Jesus, I'm having trouble seeing Jesus as a threat against, and then fill in the blank. Because I bet that if we think seriously for a moment, that would probably be a sign, right? That that is your true love, something that you're holding on to, something that you are planning on, right? For your satisfaction. But every good and just king threatens his enemies, of course, but we need to think about what we ought to do in faith in response to the things that Jesus has given us. Because every good and just king also blesses his people. Those that follow him, those that really do give up their life, those that give to the king what he is due, he blesses those. And for you, that might be power. It might be wealth. It might be skills, Giftings, you might have a large home for hospitality, time, energy, so on, right? We live in such a gifted, skillful, blessed world. We need to say, my worship needs to look like something. So God's gifts are meant as a signpost on one hand, right, to point us back to God's love. Everything we have is entrusted to us so that we would understand how great God is. But it's also entrusted to us to be used as instruments of worship. This is why tithing is a sacrifice, ought to be a sacrifice. This is why serving others ought to be a sacrifice. This is why investing in other churches ought to be a sacrifice. This is why, when it comes to evangelizing those around you that you know do not care a single wink about the gospel, it's a sacrifice. That's why it's a sacrifice to open up your homes, to invite other people in, so that you can show them the love of Christ. God's gifts, the things that we do have, are meant as instruments to worship him for how great he is. So I ask you again, are you giving all that you have, all that you are to God in worship? Do you find any of those stumps in your way, those stumbling blocks in your way, If you do, I encourage you, again, to reach out to Mike, one of the elders, right? The person who brought you here today, to talk through that, but ultimately to repent of it, to confess that to Jesus. And If there should ever be a moment in your mind and in your heart where you say, it's just not worth it, think to the truth of this passage, that God, through the crushing of his son, not only satisfied his wrath, but satisfied your greatest need, right? A restored relationship with him. Let that truth fill you with the idea and the belief that God is worth more than we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your work on our behalf. We do thank you, Lord Jesus, that you continue to minister to us the truth of the gospel, the conviction of the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would continue these great things for us. Lord, that we might recognize, again, how great you are. And Father, that we would choose with all the things that we have, with all that you've created us to be, to worship you. Uh, I really do pray that we would love you with our whole being. And Father, that that would be a great gift back to you for what you've done to us, for us on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.